Well, in uh, 29 to 34 here of chapter 15, we continue on in this uh, wonderful long chapter on the resurrection, and uh, it's really kind of a treatise. It's 58 verses long, this chapter. It's a long one, which is why we've separated it into five or six uh, sermons. But we're coming to the end. We have uh, two more after this week. Um, next week, we, we go to uh, verses thir- 35 to 49. And we'll look more at what is this body that we will be getting someday. We'll talk about that next week. And then finally, verses 50 to 58 on uh, Memorial Weekend uh, that Sunday, uh, Pastor Trey is going to be preaching and uh, just kind of the climax to the chapter. Uh, Some of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture are in those last uh, few verses. Very encouraging. Uh, So we look forward to those. uh, But today we continue... Uh, in talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ and of believers. And I want to look at these verses today as we move through the text by focusing on them, I think as Paul focuses on them, by, by asking two big questions and then talking about two big applications. So that's how I want to work through it today as well. So here's question number one, if you're taking notes. Question one, why baptize for the dead? Look at verse 29 again. And by the way, let me just put a caveat on this verse. This is one of the most debated verses in all the New Testament. So congratulations. (laughs) Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, Paul's point here in the verse is if there is no bodily resurrection of the dead, um, then why are people being baptized for the dead? Because once you're dead, you're dead if there's no resurrection. Does that make sense? Uh, Now, when we talk about being baptized for the dead, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we don't have any information about this practice Um, or the reasons why some people in Corinth were doing something like this. Paul's statement about baptizing the dead creates a major interpretive problem for us, Uh, and, and not just for us, but it's plagued the church from its beginning. What is this business of baptizing people on behalf of those who have already died? And uh, it's problematic. This verse is problematic. This is something we don't practice. So is this something we should be practicing? What, what is going on here? Uh, one commentator has identified over 200 interpretations of this verse. Just this verse. So it's very, it's very debated. Now, look at the second part of the verse. It says they're baptized on their behalf, on the behalf of the dead. So it seems like what was happening here is that people were being baptized in the place of people who had already died, and we assume that these were people who had not been baptized for whatever reason. Perhaps they had become a Christian, but they never had the opportunity to be baptized, and they had died. And so someone else got baptized so that their baptism would somehow be applied to the person who died. Does that make sense? Well, logically, it makes sense. It it doesn't make sense, though, according to the Scripture, does it? Um, It also appears that that this this practice was happening in the same circles where 
people were teaching that the dead are not raised bodily. Remember, this is the question that kind of kicked off this whole section in verse 12. Um, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So on the one hand, some people are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And, And then on the other hand, they're baptizing for the dead. And Paul's just saying, guys, this is silly. If there is no bodily resurrection, then when you're dead, you're dead and you can't do anything to help the dead. So why would you get baptized? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, So Paul's, uh, the, the answer to why the Corinthians are doing this is we don't know. We don't know. But that's not Paul's point, is it? Paul's not endorsing this practice. He is simply saying it makes no sense for you to be doing this if there was no bodily resurrection. That's the point. There are some uh, groups through history, if you look back in church history, there was a group called the Marcionites uh, back in the second century. Uh, Even today, there is a whole denomination that practices this. They're called the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, They baptize for the dead. It's kind of some kind of substitute baptism so that they get the benefits of the baptism that they, that they missed. But there is no other mention of this practice in all of the New Testament. In any Christian literature from the first century, the baptizing the living on behalf of the dead was never an accepted Christian practice anywhere. And there's absolutely nothing here other than Paul mentions that some of these people were doing this and that it's pointless, it's silly, it doesn't make any sense. That's all I'm going to say about that. Question number two, verses 30 to 32. Why suffer when we could party? In verse 30, Paul asks this question, second question. Why are we in danger every hour? Why would Christians like Paul risk great danger by professing faith in Jesus Christ if there was no bodily resurrection? If they come to the end of their life, and that's it, there's nothing else, then why would Paul go to such great lengths to endure persecution and suffering in this life? We may die of sickness or of accident or of old age. We may be killed at the hands of another person. But according to Paul, God will raise us up bodily, Our bodies will be raised on the last day. And this is our hope. We base everything on the resurrection. We know this to be true because Jesus has already raised Jesus himself from the dead. Remember? And that's what we talked about last week, that Jesus was a type of first fruits. He went first to show the guarantee of everyone else being raised as well. This is why Paul will risk danger and persecution to preach the gospel. Because the central claim of Christianity is true. Jesus died on a cross, and Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. And Paul told us in previous verses in this chapter that he had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. And not only that, but there were 500 people that saw Jesus at the same time. And many of them were still alive when Paul wrote the letter. So, 
It was verified. Jesus did rise from the dead. Look how he puts it in verse 31. He goes on, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now, of course, he doesn't mean he literally dies every day. What does Paul mean by that? Well, we, knew, we know from Luke's account of Paul's missionary journeys in, in the book of Acts, which starts around Acts chapter 13 and goes all the way to the end of the book. We know that Paul's life was in constant danger, don't we? He faced danger and death every time he entered a new city to tell them the gospel from angry Jews who wanted to kill him or riot because of his preaching or from the Roman or local authorities who just want to keep the peace and they see Paul as a troublemaker. And But Paul says, I boast here. I have pride in you. I boast about what Jesus Christ has done in the Corinthian church. Think about this, brothers and sisters. There's a reason why the apostles were willing to lay down their lives if that would cause the gospel to spread. And that reason is the hope of resurrection. Because they knew Jesus' tomb was empty and that the Lord had shown himself to be alive. The one who died on the cross is the one who rose from the dead. And as he rose, so also will they. That's the hope. That's why they suffer. So in verse 32, Paul really pushes this home to the logical conclusion. Look what he says. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now when Paul speaks about fighting wild beasts at Ephesus, he's probably speaking metaphorically for a couple of reasons. Paul was a Roman citizen, And as a Roman citizen, he would have been exempt from being thrown to the wild beasts or victimized in some kind of uh, gladiatorial combat. Um, And, and of course, there's that small point that people that were thrown to the animals generally didn't survive the encounter. So more than likely, what Paul is actually referring to here when he says he fought with beasts at Ephesus are the events described back in Acts chapter 19 when he was in Ephesus and by the riots caused by the presence of Christian preachers arriving in Ephesus. Paul had faced the angry mob, who behaved like wild animals, by the way, when he first arrived in Ephesus, this city um, that he was in when he wrote to the Corinthians. We believe Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote to the Corinthians. He may also be referring to this uh, over in chapter or in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, if you just want to jot this down, look it up later. But 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, he describes his time in Asia and he talks about some of the dangers and the level of uh, threat on his life there. He may have been talking about Ephesus in that point. So he was, he was up against it. Why would he do that? Why would he struggle in such a way? Why would he face dangers for the gospel if the dead are not raised? And the main point is his lament there in in the second part of the verse. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was, by the way, a well-known slogan um, in Paul's day. And and actually, if you have a study Bible, you may note that that it's a quote as well from the the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. 
uh, chapter 22 and verse 13. What happened back there uh, in Isaiah 22, um, the Lord pronounced a judgment on Jerusalem, and instead of repenting of their sins, the people turned to joy and revelry and celebrated a feast. Since death was coming upon them, they decided to eat and drink and be merry and go out with a bang. And Paul argues that this decision to eat and drink and party makes sense if there is not a future resurrection. If this life is all that there is, then why would you ever invite suffering on yourself? Why would you ever invite persecution or hardship on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why not just live it up? Make this life all about pleasure, all about the accumulation of things. But since the resurrection is clearly true, Paul is saying risking one's life and suffering for the sake of Christ is not foolish at all. It's wise, in fact. Think about it. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then what else is there other than the pursuit of pleasure, self-gratification? If there is no resurrection, Christianity is a lie. And what else is there? Seriously. For people who don't believe in in Christianity, who don't believe in Jesus, who just are out there living their life, most of them think this is all there is. Or if they have some kind of vision of heaven, they think maybe everybody gets there and, you know, who knows what happens up there. They play harps and float on clouds and have wings and, you know. But if this life is all there is, no wonder people live the way they do. No wonder people pursue pleasure and self-gratification the way they do trying to get as much as they can out of this life without suffering, trying to avoid all kinds of suffering. How does this apply to your life and mine? You'd say, oh, this doesn't apply to us. Well, just think about it for a minute, brothers and sisters. Is your life and my life, is is it characterized by a pursuit of pleasure Primarily, I'm not saying that no one should ever have pleasure. I'm not, I'm not making that argument. I'm not saying you should never have joy and always walk around with a frown on your face. And I'm not saying that at all. But are our lives characterized by the pursuit of pleasure, the priority of pleasure, rather than the daily taking up of a cross to follow Jesus, which is what he demands? Ask yourself this question. I have to ask myself this question. Are you experiencing any suffering for the gospel? Any. Think about that. Are you experiencing any suffering for the gospel at all? If not, why not? And the answer is probably going to be because we're not living as faithfully as we need to be. We're not spreading the gospel as faithfully as we need to. Because if we were, we know we would face some persecution. We know we would face some suffering. Jesus promised it. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And again, I'm not saying, yay, the Christian life, we're going to, you know, we're just out there to suffer, you know. It's just all pain and gloom and doom. 
No, no, no. There's great joy in serving Jesus. There's great joy in thinking of the eternal life that he's given us and what is coming, our inheritance in heaven, the place he's preparing for us. But brothers and sisters, this world is not a friendly place to those who would follow Jesus. Think about this. All right, those are the two big questions I think Paul's after here. The baptism of the dead and the pursuit of pleasure rather than enduring suffering for the Lord. A couple of applications Paul gives us here, verse 33 and 34. First application, get better friends. He quotes another proverb to make the point here that when we associate with people who deny, in the Corinthians case, who deny the resurrection, it's going to lead Christian people into sinful behavior, ultimately to a denial of the Christian life. Look what he says. Do not be deceived. Bad company, you see this is in quotes, bad company ruins good morals. That was a quote that came from a poet uh, that lived in Athens three to four centuries before Christ. It was well known in the Corinthian era, in the area. Bad company ruins good morals. If people have no moral anchor in life, if they're completely adrift, no basis for living their life other than their own opinions or their own gut feelings to do what they think is right or wrong. When good people, Paul says, good in in a relative sense, right? Not in a holy sense, but good people, we think, oh, that's a good person. When good people associate in any kind of a sustained time with bad people, immoral people, more often than not, the bad corrupts the good rather than the good influencing the bad. That's the principle that he says here. One author put it this way, the escalator of civic righteousness usually runs down, not up. A lot of people think, well, if I can just spend lots of time with these people, maybe I can influence them for Jesus. That may be possible. In fact, missionaries are doing that all over the world, aren't they? It's not an easy task, but oh my, you have to be careful. If you surround yourself with bad people all the time, immoral people all the time, Paul says this axiom is probably going to hold true. They're going to influence you more than you influence them. Paul's very clear here about this either-or choice. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this life is all that there is, and we might as well seek as much pleasure as we can. But Paul is also able to remind those among the Corinthians who are casting all caution to the wind that there is a huge price to be paid for such behavior. The pursuit of of pleasure puts you in a circle of other people who are also seeking pleasure in their life. And oftentimes they seek pleasure at your expense. The Corinthians don't want to put themselves in such a dangerous place, Paul says especially because Jesus did rise from the dead and life does have meaning and purpose despite the world's opinion to the contrary, that this is all there is. So number one, get better friends. If you find yourself hanging out with all the wrong people who have all the wrong values, all the wrong priorities in life, get some better friends. I'm not saying never witness. 
I'm not saying never spend any time with people that need the Lord, but they should not be your bosom buddies because it's going to rub off the wrong way. The escalator goes down. Paul says, watch out. Don't be deceived. Second application, verse 34. Get sobered up. Get sobered up. He makes a very pointed exhortation here to people in the church who are acting like there was no resurrection from the dead. He says, wake up. That's the title of my message today. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Literally, sober up, stop sinning. That's what Paul says. Sober up, stop sinning. The Corinthians have to stop following this false teaching because almost inevitably it leads to sin. He says, wake up, stop sinning. Your doubts about the resurrection point to ignorance about God. And this is the second time in the letter Paul writes um, and says that he wanted to shame them. I say this to your shame. He said it back in chapter 6 as well. When it comes to the resurrection, what is right and true about the resurrection is obvious. Jesus really died, and Jesus really rose from the dead. There's 500 people who saw him alive. Go talk to them. Paul says, I've seen him personally. After his death, I've seen him. It's true. It's obvious. And the Corinthians' failure to see this or to doubt it is troubling to Paul. How are you and I in this area? Think about, think about this for a minute. He talks about this idea of sobering up which means that, and he talks about this drunken stupor. This isn't the only time Paul talks like this. He talks about this in his letter to Timothy too. Sometimes when we hang out with those people that are driving us the wrong direction, it, it almost like puts us in a moral state of intoxication where our moral senses get blurred, where we can't see straight where we can't see clearly. Have your moral senses been blurred because you've been pursuing pleasure and sin? Or are you living in the reality that not only is Jesus alive, but he's coming back at any time? And are you trying and looking to live a holy and pure life waiting for his return? Ready for him. If not, Paul says, this is your wake-up call, brothers and sisters. Don't hit the snooze on this warning. Wake up. If your life is all about the here and now, wake up. If your life is surrounded by people who are dragging you down and causing you to doubt clear and obvious truth from the Scripture, Wake up. Stop sinning. Get better friends. This is an important warning in Paul's case on the resurrection. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. We're going to sing a final song here in just a minute. Just a couple thoughts here about the impact of the resurrection on our daily lives. You know, one of the great dangers that we face today is the temptation 
to, to think about our standing with God based on how we feel at a given time. So if everything in life is going fine and we feel great and we're healthy, we tend to feel more positive about God. Our faith seems stronger to us. But when everything is tough and the job and the money and the bills and the health and everything just really puts us in a tough spot, sometimes that's when we're tempted to feel God is distant from us or that he's maybe punishing us. And a lot of people have left the faith after suffering some kind of big trauma in their life and from which they conclude that Christianity is not true or it doesn't work for them. We all know of people who've done something like that. This is what happens when we base our faith on our experience or on our circumstance and not on the gospel. Brothers and sisters, when our faith is based on the truth of Christianity, what's the truth of Christianity? What Paul and the apostles claimed happened to Jesus of Nazareth really happened. If we believe that, we are far less likely to be overwhelmed by the storms of life or by the temptation of doubt. Our relationship with God was secured forever by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Our standing with God does not change based on our feelings, based on our circumstances. And this is good news to us. And this is the only place where we can find comfort and help and strength during the trials and tragedies of life because there will be resurrection. There is life after death. And that is the hope that keeps us going, brothers and sisters. That's how we persevere through this life. That's how we get our priorities in the right place. The fact of the resurrection gives meaning and purpose to everything we do. We are not left as Christians with an ethic of me first or pleasure is primary because this life is all that there is. Oh, no, friends. Because Jesus has raised from the dead, death is not the end of our existence. It is just the beginning. Have you thought about that recently, brothers and sisters? It's something you should meditate on, something I should meditate on more frequently than we do. This life is not all there is. This is just the beginning. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, this means that Christianity is true whether people believe it or not. All non-Christians have to live their lives trying to deny or ignore what God has done in history. To escape the truth, they invent false religions. They turn Christianity into some sort of a religious experience or feeling. Or they try to ignore the claims of God and Jesus Christ upon their lives. We don't need to prove to the lost that Christianity is true. We simply need to preach the gospel to them and let them feel the weight and the guilt that comes when they deny that truth and let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's what we need to do. 
We live every moment of our lives, brothers and sisters, in the light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We look back to Jesus' cross and the empty tomb to see that our salvation was accomplished for us. We live every new day struggling to die to ourself and live to Jesus, who is our wisdom, who is our righteousness. And we look ahead. This is something we don't do very much. We need to keep looking ahead to that great and glorious day when the heavens will roll up like a scroll and all the promises of God will be finally fulfilled in the resurrection of our bodies and life eternal, new heavens, new earth. You, you think there's pleasures to pursue in this life? Oh, sure, there's, there's beautiful places to visit. There's sandy beaches. Pastor Trey is at one of them this morning. Hey, Pastor Trey. There's beautiful places to visit. There's wonderful food to eat, fun people to meet. Oh, friends, the Bible says, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You think the pleasures of this world are wonderful and satisfy? The pleasures of the new heavens and the new earth are going to blow all this away. So friends, don't live for the here and now. Live for the then. Suffer by being a faithful proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ now and inherit glory in the then with Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Let's sing about that glorious day that we're looking forward to because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.